Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. China has become a bit of an obsession with me. When I was asked last year to give a speech about President Trump's trade policies with China, frankly, I didn't know enough about China, so I dug into it. When I did, I learned that concerns with trade deficits pale when compared to the looming threat that China presents to the United States on a lot of other fronts, like hundreds of billions of dollars of intellectual property theft, cyber economic espionage, and cyber network attacks. Its aggressive action to expand the dominance in South China Sea, one of the world's premier commercial sea lanes, and a critical area of military operations. I learned how China is using loans for economic development projects to take control of key ports and infrastructure in developing countries. I learned that they have 300,000 internet policemen in Beijing and that they're expanding their internal surveillance systems to achieve global reach, and that China's president for life, Xi, is now copying Mao's signature. But China is also the largest single contributor to global economic growth. It is home to 476 billionaires, second only to the 585 in America, and it is the world's largest market for consumer luxury goods, while hundreds of millions of Chinese live in poverty with big tensions between haves and have-nots, air and water pollution are terrible, its population is aging rapidly and is on track to peak in the coming decade, and after that, set to decline at a rapid rate, it has few friends or allies in the rest of Asia. Nevertheless, China is aggressively moving to acquire resources, influence, and territory to project national will. And that is one of my guests today defines as the object of war. Dr. Stefan Halver, welcome, Steph. Thanks very much, friend. Bill. Uh, Cambridge professor, uh, author of the Beijing Consensus, and worked for years in the White House and the Pentagon and various government agencies advising on China and all things uh, Asian. Welcome. Thank you. And with me also is retired Rear Admiral James Stark, who spent 90, 93, 33 years. 33. You're not quite that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were seasoned. It seems like You're a seasoned guy. You've been 33 years as a naval officer uh, working in strategy and policy at the Pentagon and the White House. Uh, he was also president of the Naval War College. Correct. So, Good to be with you. Jim, Welcome. Steph, welcome. Thank you two have known each other for a long time. Who wants to go first? Where do you think we stand? Steph. Okay. Um, where do we stand with China? I think, I think the, the thing that's interesting to me is that we talk a lot about the negotiation we're having now with China on trade using tariffs. But underneath the tariff issue, there's really the much more important issue of the theft of intellectual property, the coerced, uh, you know, uh, putting people on boards of American companies that are doing business in China. And there's a lot more going on in China with trade than just, just tariffs and things like that. What, yeah, quite right. Well, we're, we're um, 
in a, in a struggle with China at the moment to try to deal with their policy on several levels. Uh, on the trade level, the trade issue, we're trying to get some balance in the, uh, in, the, in the trade numbers where China is and has been for some time uh, in a strongly advantaged position, selling very much more to us than we sell to them. And that has meant that uh, our uh, manufacturing sector, our export sector, uh, and other parts of our economy have been disadvantaged. So that's one of the things that's being discussed now in these China... Uh, disadvantaged because we let them into the World Trade Organization and... Well, certainly since we did do that right. in, in 2002, we've, we've seen a, a vast decrease in our uh, sales to China and in uh, our market share. China has moved very quickly to consolidate its position internationally. But in addition to that, which is a tactical question, we're concerned with China's theft of intellectual property, the forced transfer of intellectual uh, property by U.S. corporations to the Chinese is a real problem because these are corporate, uh, uh, if, uh, the type of information that makes corporations unique and capable. And the other things we're very concerned with are um, cyber intrusion, cyber theft, cyber espionage, all of which China practices regularly. So those are the, the issues that are on the table. And uh, China has used its vast uh, hard currency resources uh, to lend money to countries around the world who, it turns out, have difficulty repaying it. And so this is another part of our conversation, but I think I should just mention that. Jim? I would agree with Steph. I, I think that uh, China has been in a very subtle but very real conflict with the United States for the last 25 years. It's just been below the surface, and it's only been recently that our government and that American business has realized that we've been being pushed back. So China intends to re-exert its hegemony throughout East Asia, to push the United States out of the region. Uh, they will be using a whole variety of tactics, techniques. Uh, these are economic, they're political, they are undermining our alliances. Uh, they're pushing out to change some of the elements of international law. For example, they signed on to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, but when they lost Accord on the basis of that treaty here a couple of years ago, they simply decided to ignore it and say, well, that doesn't apply to us. So China is sort of changing the rules of the game even as they are exerting themselves as a major power. And I don't think the United States is against China taking its rightful place in the world, but I don't think it has to be a completely zero-sum game, which is the way the Chinese are playing. Well, Steph, when I talked about you in the introduction, uh, you defined the object of war is acquiring resources, influence, and territory uh, to project national will. And that is the definition of war. Have you also been involved in a study, and I think you may have been involved in this as well, um, China, the three warfares. That's correct, yeah. And in it, you define these three warfares as not the way we traditionally think of it, as 
getting out the, the ships and the guns and the airplanes, yeah. but rather something else. Right. Um, the, the Chinese have been very uh, clever <clears throat> in projecting power through the media, through psychological intimidation, and through manipulation of the law. They call it lawfare. And uh, Jim just mentioned the, the issue in the, the courts uh, two years ago when China was brought to the International uh, Tribunal on Law of the Sea uh, by the Philippines, who claimed that China was intruding on their territory in the South China Sea. China lost that case, and uh, as, as Jim said, they simply ignored it. They would not accept the conclusions, and they just simply moved on. Well, what does that mean? It means that the Chinese are quite happy to operate outside the law, that they, are not, they do not feel constrained by uh, the law as promulgated. And this is a problem. I mean, it's been a problem in dealing with them all the way along when they promised not to militarize the islands in the South China Sea. President Xi, Xi Jinping, stood in the Rose Garden, made that promise to the American government and the people, and then he went right ahead and put missiles and ships and everything else on, on these islands. Well, you get at something. They don't, they have a view of themselves as what, an empire? Not, empire is not the right word. A uh, what, what middle is, kingdom is what they middle call kingdom. it. Middle kingdom. Yeah. And a middle kingdom does, is, doesn't have a relationship with other states the way European states think of it as we respect your territory, yeah. we respect our, they, vice versa. But they don't see it that way. They think if there's a middle kingdom, there are no other states. They are the state. They're the suzerain power. Everybody else is the what power? The suzerain power. A, okay. A, uh, sort of the first among equals, the big brother with the little brothers around who recognize it and, and bring tribute to, to the emperor in, in Beijing and, and bow down before it. Uh, and that's what they're used to. And they lost that back in the 19th century, and they resented it. And so they are a, essentially a revanchist power that aims to regain what they, what they lost when uh, the Europeans came in and, and forced them to their knees. And they feel very resentful of what the West has done. They're going to change that any way they can. Uh, I think another thing that to point out is that when China makes an agreement, they view it as temporary. You know, temporary may be 10 or 20 years, but they may be sort of stopped from wherever they're going, and then they're still going to keep pushing. The goal never changes. It's I'm reminded of the story about uh, Henry Kissinger asking Chao and Lai what he thought of uh, the French Revolution. And Channel I said, it's too soon to tell. The Chinese have a very long, <laughs> long time horizon. And so even if we reach agreement with China, we should not expect them to unilaterally hold to that agreement. They'll, they'll do whatever they have to do until they can get a chance to start pushing back again. Yeah, I worked, with, I worked on Wall Street, and one of the, probably should go on name, one of the very successful financier deal guys on Wall Street once informed me, he said, you know, these contract, this contract, is just the basis for our next negotiation. Exactly. <laughs> so that's that's. So you're familiar. With I'm very familiar. <laughs> right here, right here, and right here on the good old USA. But but you know the the last point you made, Jim, uh, about um, all of this being temporary or subject to political and other change. That's exactly what the argument is about right now in Beijing, as these latest round of talks conclude. 
because the U.S. side wants concrete timetables for China to act on its commitments, and they want to have ways of verifying that. And the Chinese, of course, are very hesitant to provide it. Yeah. So there's a, a time for it. So we're now in the midst of, as I, I mentioned, the trade negotiation that's ongoing. Bob Lighthizer's working that now. Yeah. Do you like what he's doing? Are we approaching this in the right way? I think it's realistic. And yeah. I, I think it's, I think American business for a very long time has deluded itself at, uh, and seen China as kind of the pot of gold at the end of a rainbow and gone in expecting that they were going to get access to these hundreds of millions of potential customers. And in the process, the Chinese have imposed conditions on them that have essentially undercut the whole, the whole contract. So when, when, and I worked for a company that saw that happen to some of our things, that we went in, we sold some, some equipment to the Chinese. This was commercial equipment, and they back-engineered it, and pretty soon they were pr producing it for themselves, uh, undercutting us in the Chinese market, so we never got access to it. And then they were selling it on the world market, so they were taking away all the rest of our customers, too. And it, so the whole thing backfired on us. And I think a lot of U.S. companies are finding that there are significant prices to be paid when they're chasing this ephemeral goal of the Chinese market. It's just not there. The Chinese won't let it happen. Well, I think we assume that if we went in, we would end up developing trade relationships with everybody. They would become more of a liberal democracy and enter the Western world as one of the players, and we, the, the trade would actually bring about the, the promise of peace. So instead, that hasn't happened. We now have Xi as the president for life, Right. And we've had, I guess, since he's been in power, what, six years, seven years? Six. Six years. We've seen a re complete reversion to the authoritarian, almost Mao-like uh, like leadership. Yeah. He's even copying Mao's signature. Oh, no. Really? Is he on a calligraphy? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> so, I, I'm reminded a little bit of, of something that we in the military have seen. For a number of years, we've been trying to um, develop personal relationships between our senior commanders, in this case in the Pacific, uh, with their Chinese counterparts. So we have reciprocal ship visits and, and staff meetings, and the, supposedly these four-star admirals and generals will become, uh, if not friends, at, at least uh, familiar with one another so that in a crisis, the ideal is that you can call him on the phone and say, hey, what gives? This is what we're trying to do. Can we de-escalate this? The reality, though, is that even as we've done all of this, we've forgotten the fact that the Chinese military is completely controlled by the Central, Central Committee of the Ch Communist Chinese Party, and that when our guy in a crisis picks up the phone to call his counterpart, there's nobody at the end of the phone. They cannot afford, for fear of, lo of their lives, to be seen as working together with us against the interests of China. So all of these things that we try to do to, to de-escalate ahead of a crisis tend not to work in when push comes to shove. Well, you've written a piece for, I think, the study uh, China 2020 about 2030, yes. 2030 um, alternative futures for China. And one of the interesting distinctions, I think you drew in that, maybe it was someplace else, was that you have the Chinese Communist Party and you have the Chinese. And those are not necessarily the same thing. And if you had China without the Communist Party, although that's inconceivable to see how that gets rolled back, do you have a different relationship with the China? Is it, is it a party issue or is it, is it an issue with the Chinese uh, as a people? 
it's a bit of both. But I think China as a nation, independent of, of what sort of a government it has, is still going to have a very traditional um, uh, view of itself as the Middle Kingdom, which deserves mm -hmm. this recognition and uh, have its neighbors uh, accommodate China's wishes. And it sees, needs to see itself as the preeminent power in the Western Pacific, uh, and that the U.S. Is, being, is going to be pushed out regardless of whether it's a communist or, or, or an independent government. So how are, is, is China projecting that power in the Pacific now? Well, they're, they're doing it certainly economically. Uh, they have become part of the TPP. Uh, sadly, the U.S. Yeah. walked away from that treaty, which gave us just about everything we want in trade policy. And then we just unilaterally said, no, we can't do that. But uh, what it meant is that the United States has now been displaced as the go-to power in economic policy in the, in the Far East. Uh, they're doing it militarily. They've had enormous increases in their military capability. Um, in the past, I, I would have felt very comfortable saying that the United States could uh, knock down, in, if it ever came to a, an open conflict, that we could knock down the Chinese military and push ourselves right up to their coast to impose our military will upon them. That's no longer the case. We cannot operate in the South China Sea or the East China Sea in an actual war. We're going to have to stay out of there. We can operate nuclear submarines in there, of course. But uh, if I, my sense is that uh, the Chinese military has now uh, achieved a point where it can deny us access to certain areas in the, in the, uh, within the first island chain. That is, goes from, from uh, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, Indonesia, all the way around to Vietnam. The interesting thing about this uh, bill is that um, we've known this for a while. Uh, it was all made very clear to the Obama administration. The admirals were requesting on a continuing basis that they be permitted to run freedom of navigation exercises, which would have put U.S. warships <coughs> through the South China Sea and inhibited uh, their uh, efforts to militarize these islands. But those approvals were routinely delayed, often to the point where they never came at all. And so the Chinese had basically a free, um, a free path to militarizing the islands in the South China Sea. Now, it's not just a military zone we're talking about. The South China Sea is one of the world's premier commercial pathways. It's $5 mm. trillion dollars of goods every year. And um, it, it's essential that, that uh, those sea lanes be kept open and available to Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Philippines, and so on. Uh, the Chinese would like to monitor and control those sea lanes. And I think, you know, you ask what they're doing to assert their position in the South China Sea. One of the things they're trying to do is sever uh, our relations with our principal allies. Uh, Japan would be one prime example, and in another sense, uh, they'd like us to be forced into a, uh, a disadvantageous conflict in Taiwan, which, which we're uh, concerned about. Well, it seems like one of the, you're talking about the Chinese, the Americans, it seems like the Chinese, they are operating in, in an integrated fashion with all parts of the government, whether it's the military or whether it's the, their diplomatic people or whether it's 
the trade people, they're all coordinated to achieve a specific objective, and that's not necessarily the case here. As a matter of fact, it is not the case here. I think in America, we tend to balkanize everything. The State Department and the Defense Department sort of work together, but certainly nobody wanted to work with the Department of Commerce because that was about business. Instead, we're seeing a, a, a highly integrated approach. And you mentioned, or you mentioned that it came up in the Obama administration. Are we getting better at getting interagency coordination to deal with China? I mean, are we up to the task to, to, to take this on? I can't really tell. I would say that I, I think we have a long way to go. Yeah. Uh, you put your finger on, on one of the keys to China's success so far, that uh, everybody reports back to the, to the Central Committee, and they, and they make sure that everything is orchestrated like the conductor of an orchestra. And we don't do that. We're very stovepiped. We're very independent. We coordinate from time to time. But it's not really being integrated as policy. And it needs to be public policy. It needs to be law. It needs to be diplomacy. It needs to be the politics, the military side, mm -hmm. of things, the economics. And I think I applaud what the administration has done so far. We need to get much better at it. Part of this is because we have such powerful interest groups. Um, when you have uh, Wall Street groups or commercial groups of different kinds, uh, they have power in the Commerce Department. The Commerce Department, in turn, uh, articulates their objectives. We also have uh, uh, national security interests. And so those are the stovepipes that you're referring to. But I think that... Um, I think that what we've, what we've seen in this most recent uh, uh, few months, particularly with the trade uh, discussions, is that there are two powerful factions within the White House. Uh, one is uh, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, mm -hmm. and then, of course, the Commerce Secretary. And uh, Wilbur Ross. Wilbur Ross, yeah. on the one hand. And on the other hand are... <coughs> Uh, trade negotiators, um, Mr. Lighthizer. Yeah, Bob Lighthizer and, and, uh, uh, and Peter, Peter Navarro. Navarro. Yeah. And they really have different views. Um, Mnuchin and Ross uh, want to see an expansion of trade uh, and a, uh, uh, a kind of rebalancing of the trade relationship. Mm -hmm. Lighthizer and Navarro are, are concerned about intellectual property, they're concerned about structural issues, they want to uh, have a, a, a halt to cyber intrusions, and so on. And these are different sets of objectives, they're really different realms of the problem. So when we talk about one central authority directing priorities and establishing direction, we don't really have that. I mean, we're not, both of those groups are very strong and they're both very active. Well, I'd consider both Wilbur Ross and, and, and Steve Mnuchin late to the game Yeah. In, in the sense they show up, they've been in business, and I suffer from this a bit myself, having been in business, running things. You don't necessarily learn all the policy nuances and the levers that you need to have in a trade negotiation. And Lighthizer, by contrast, has been doing this for 40 yeah. years. Yeah. And what he was, he was deputy trade negotiator what in the Reagan yes. White House, I believe, and so he... He has a comprehensive and and uh, systematic grasp and grasp of this. And, and Navarro, I, he's a, he's a prickly guy, but I, I think he's looking out for America. You, you know him? 
Yeah, I do, and I agree. <laughs> I, I think the world of him. I mean, I think yeah. that he's, he's, you say, he's not, some people don't find him the easiest person to get along with, but I've always found him to be very bright, very innovative, and very determined. <laughs> well, so, yeah. So when we talk about the integrated piece of their, of their, their, their strategies, uh, the three warfares coming back that, if I may, psychological warfare, media warfare, and uh, uh, legal warfare, uh, lawfare, how, how do they conduct that? I mean, what's the, what are the instruments of that, uh, that initiative? Yeah. Which agencies? Who's, who how do the Chinese the, conduct that? Well, yeah. um, what, you, what you see is that the Chinese uh, foreign ministry uh, works together with the MSS, the Ministry of State Security, and with the um, the Works Department. It's called the uh, um, the whole name, but it's it's called the Works Department. It's an international influence projecting group, and they will, given a particular problem, they will use one of those three uh, instruments to affect the outcome. As Jim mentioned, the uh, issue with the South China Sea and their access to it, that went to the courts. They uh, responded to it with a legal fight, which they lost, and then they ignored the, the results. Uh, in the case of the Philippines, for example, um, they used the media. They uh, put programs on local television and radio and in the press, uh, supporting their claims. And that's the media side. Psychological warfare, intimidation in essence, is what's used to stop Philippine fishermen from accessing islands, which have always been part of the Philippines. But all of a sudden, Chinese Coast Guard and commercial fishing vessels will show up and try to prevent them. So you have those three things being used uh, in tandem on many particular issues. Are there factions in China, the way we talked about factions in the White House? Not in terms of these issues. Yeah. yeah least, not that I know. So there's a consensus that this is what Chinese want to bring about. I think all... it's true that in, in foreign policy they do. The, the issue is how they do it. Uh, there are certainly factions within the Chinese government. I'm not yes. an expert on that. Sure. But, but Xi Jinping uh, does get pushback from within elements of, of the uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party. So, uh, and within the security establishment, too. Uh, I think the military is seen as relatively neutral in this, but there are factions within, within the party itself uh, that remain a threat to uh, Xi Jinping and his counter-corruption campaign of the last five years. It was not really against corruption. It was against uh, various elements that he saw Pol as... Political enemies. His political enemies. Only his enemies were deemed to have committed. Uh, in in some Russia, sort of you were declared, you know, crazy, and they sent you to exactly. asylum. You just didn't happen to agree with uh, yeah. with Stalin. Uh, well, that gets back into how how powerful is the current regime, and are there inter internal issues that it faces? I mean, Chinese economic growth is slowing. Uh, they still have a problem of the rural China, which has, still sees hundreds of millions of people living in poverty. Mm -hmm. You've got a restive consumer class in China. Uh, we have billionaires which have been operating with a free hand, and now they're beginning to get reined in by the uh, right. by the Politburo. Uh, I mean, are there? Th and then there's also the fact they feel they need to use this facial recognition 
right. surveillance state system, and I also have social credits that uh, Which that they're really using to yeah. try to maintain yeah. the whip hand on uh, on its people. The is security that... side is really intimidating. I mean, they do. They they have, um, for example, they have three hundred thousand internet policemen operating in Beijing alone. That's a lot of people monitoring the internet. <laughs> and, uh, and as you say, these uh, facial recognition uh, advances they've made means that they can take photographs of people in any part of the country and tell who they are, where they've been, what their background is, and so on. Uh, and the pushback that Xi Jinping experiences is becoming quite noticeable. Uh, he's had a slowdown in the economy. The export sector is frustrated and, and not to say angry. The growth rate is, uh, is which had been around 6.5%. Some people uh, believe, for example, Michael Pettis, professor at the University of Peking, is saying, look, these numbers are a fantasy. The growth rate is right around 2%. And the pressure that that imposes on Chinese Consumers and producers is very well, strong. and I think you pointed out that when they gather these statistics, if you're shipping yeah. them in from a province <laughs> yeah. and you ship it in and you say, "Well, we didn't do so well this quarter," that's not well received. There's no, a, there's, so we check it up. So, so there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure to get those numbers looking good. Internal security is a is a I think the, the Chinese government's major concern. Yeah, and uh, they're going to be having problem with. Uh, often referred to as the grand bargain. And that grand bargain is that the Chinese Communist Party is, since it doesn't have real elections, is sort of politically illegitimate. But the, po the po people of China, let them get away with that if the party provides for their economic welfare and gradually is increasing uh, the, the, uh, the economy, their standard of living, and so on. Common wheel. But that's not happening yeah. anymore. There are now some very obvious haves in China and a whole lot of very unhappy have-nots. And the gap is growing. Yeah. And so it's both economical, but it also has to do with human rights. So it's important for the United States to keep talking about, at least, what the Chinese are doing to limit the human rights of their own populace, because it's very popular with the uh, people on the outs of China, the non-Communist Party members. They, they, they notice that. They, they look at the bar broadcasts. They look on the Internet. They get this information. Well, how's the social credit system work? The social credit system is a, um, uh, a relatively new thing. Uh, and it is um, it, people are assigned positive and negative credits based upon their comments and upon their participation in different civic and government-related uh, uh, organizations. So there is a sort of a vast accounting that the government exercises about the utility and value of the citizens of China. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable concept. Yeah. It, um, it goes to the uh, idea that somehow the Chinese can know uh, uh, a huge amount about every individual who they are, what they look like, where they work, what they do. I mean, but not just people who are applying for government jobs. We're talking about everybody. <laughs> it's, it is the very definition of a totalitarian society. 
It's 1984. Uh, in, 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 in process. I mean, it's not there yet, but it's, it's, it's going that way. This sense of a monolithic Chinese government, which has this well-thought-out strategy to kind of take over all of Asia and then work its way out, um, is fairly frightening. I think that we ought to remember that China has some significant vulnerabilities. It has domestic vulnerabilities. Uh, they have environmental concerns. The population, the demographics of China is, is, is a real problem for them, and it's going to get worse here. Um, they are uh, unable to uh, have good relations historically with, with their neighbors. So unlike the United States, China really doesn't have any friends or allies in the area. And so the key yeah. for us, the key for us is to nurture good relations with allies in Asia. And if we don't have that, we're not going to succeed. And what I worry about is that we seem to be walking away from those alliances. And they're critical. The United States. The United yeah. States is, yeah. yeah. We, we're undercutting our friendships. We're being seen as... Is this under President Trump, both. under President Obama, both. under President Bush? Uh, less so under less Bush. Bush, okay. But I think that uh, we were seen as weak, uh, anyone who would establish a red line and then allow themselves to be pushed back from it, uh, causes all of our allies, not just those in the Middle East, to wonder whether we can be counted on when push, to, push comes to shove. Well, the game is up a little bit with China, though. And I mean, it, it, look at America. A year ago, I think when Steph, you were on, the, there was a general consensus we were still working out through the idea that if we let them into the World Trade Center uh, system and we did business with them, we let US companies in and we helped them with some technology, that we'd all win. And then now, I think we're seeing the dark side of that and yeah. what the real agenda is. And you talk about the relationship with their neighbors, there's something I came across that's, that's called uh, the Chinese debt trap, D-E-B-T, yes. debt yeah. trap. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they go to you, Mr. Dictator of your small country that wants to be a big deal, and says, well, look, we'll give you, you know, $500 million to build a deep water port, but we know you don't have any money. So we'll lend it to you. And oh, by the way, we'll build it using all Chinese companies. So in effect, we're getting paid back our own money as we go. And Chinese labor that are imported, by the way. So and you're, Chinese so your labor. guys don't get the benefit. So all the, so your, your, your people don't get the benefit. Yeah. And then they discover, well, maybe you can't pay us back. So maybe we ought to take our collateral and we now own your port. Absolutely correct. Real-world example, I think, Sri Lanka? Yes. Yeah, Sri Lanka. What, what's... Ambantota. Uh, it's a major port in Sri yeah. Lanka. Yeah. And then we had uh, Piraeus in Greece. Did they do that to the, the no, Greeks it, it as wasn't, well? I thought it, it the was Greeks a straight, was It was a straight business deal. The, I think the Greeks, the Greeks just, just sold it. Just sold it. Just sold it to them. There's no pretense China. there. <laughs> same thing, in, same thing in, in Panama. Yeah. You run, the, run the ports there, too. Now, what are the strategic implications? I mean, since Sri Lanka, doesn't that put them within 100 miles of uh, India? Correct. And right, right. And right on a, a key point in the sea lines of communication between the Persian Gulf and China. So all the, the sea lines of communication come and become a, a, choke, choke point, a choke point at the southern tip of, of, of India. And that's exactly Remember where, where Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka is. is. It's Ceylon. It's, That's just it's all the, the, way the down. teardrop of uh, all the way down yes. on the east yeah. side of India, almost to the very south, which means that ships going from the far east to 
to the Near East. Yeah. Pass right past or go right by it. So, <laughs> but as I mentioned when we started this conversation, people are catching on. I think Pakistan and Nepal recently declined to take money from the Chinese to build projects. Yeah. They're understanding that the strings can be pretty, uh, pretty brutal. Pretty onerous. And that, some of that is also happening in Africa, where the Chinese have been active for a very long time in, in, in the uh, area of, of minerals and, and re natural resources. Are you optimistic that this, once we go through this period of adjustment, that we can find a way to, to, to find, make peace with a, chi with a China in, in the world? Or is, it, is there a sense of international or their, their destiny, their, their, um, their kingdom? What, what do we call the kingdom? The, uh, the Middle Kingdom? The Middle Kingdom. I mean, is that, is that so deep in their uh, DNA that we're not going to end up with anything except uh, I, a standoff? I think, we, we, I think we can do it temporarily. Yeah. But we will only do it as long as we push back against China, which is what we're doing now. Uh, if we sort of accede to them, try, trying to throw them a few scraps so that they'll then quiet down, that's not going to work. It just, it just feeds their appetite. And they just, like many bullies, they'll just keep pushing until somebody pushes back. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I think, I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, I'm not optimistic that we can avoid a confrontation with China. I think that we have to um, continue to push back. Confrontation and military confrontation. Eventually, it's going to be something like that. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have a, a spat over Chinese uh, uh, attempts to exclude us from the South China Sea yeah. or Chinese attempts to take Taiwan by force. Uh, those are probably the two most important issue areas. But I don't know how that's going to be avoided, except, as Jim says, you have to... Uh, start early and with constant pressure and trying to avoid uh, explosive or what's called kinetic confrontations. We have to try that. If it works, great, but I doubt that it will. Over time, the Chinese will press forward with the, what they believe are legitimate claims on their side, and we will I guess either I, respond I, or not. I share your pessimism because I think our United States domestic politics are so silly and unserious, that it's hard to think of us thinking strategically yeah. to deal with these, yeah. these sorts of things. I don't think most of American business or government officials have a real appreciation for what's going on. That's been, until they watch this show or until listen to this show. show of course, that's the whole point. We're going to stream it straight in there, yeah. But, but I'm afraid I, I agree with Steph that uh, <clears throat> the, the issue is going to be how bad a, a military confrontation is going to be. Well, the business community, and I'm familiar with that, has a particular problem. If you're a big company, your CEO is probably going to be on the job four or five or six years. Yeah. And they're under a lot of pressure to produce results. Right. So it's pretty easy to go into, say, a China and, say, make a short-term deal to produce good numbers that may not have uh, great strategic implications 10, 12, 20 years down the road. It would make the shareholders happy. But that's, yeah. that's it. I can tell you within the U.S. military, there's a lot of planning going on. For, it's a very difficult problem how we would confront the Chinese militarily, what our, what our and you end were, goals And you were president were. of the Naval War College. Correct. And we, ha we have groups up, a group up there uh, who works all the time. That's what, all they what, do. What kind of planning? What's the nature of the thinking uh, this through? What their military goals are, what our political goals should be, what our military goals should be, the uh, operational strategies that should be used in order to impose our will upon them rather than the other way around. 
when they're, uh, if, if the conflict escalates, should it be vertical escalation that is growing more and more intense uh, with attacks on China itself, or should it be horizontally escalated, that is, move, move away from China geographically and attack their interests elsewhere in the world? Uh, should we wage conflict only within the first island chain, or should we uh, attack their forces outside the first island chain? You know, do, do we have the resources committed in the budget to, to implement on strategies like that? No. Because China seems to be one of those huge missed, missed opportunities slash threats, and that we focus so much in the Middle East post 9-11, and we fought these two, I think, very badly conceived wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and consumed a you know, trillions of dollars of resources, yeah. suck things into that, and we end up with nothing, Absolutely. virtually. That's very sad. I, I think one positive thing I can say is at least we're talking about it. Back yeah. in the Obama administration, uh, the Defense Department was not even allowed to put in its official documents that China we could come into conflict with China. You couldn't talk about them in the national security strategy. And that points to a, a really important larger issue, which is that for uh, three or four decades, following Kissinger's visit to China, Nixon's opening, we accepted the idea that somehow if we extended a, uh, assistance to China and offered them guidance, that they would develop interest groups mm -hmm. and then eventually political parties and eventually democracy, and we'd be able to deal with them uh, as a regular or normal country. And as, as you said earlier, Bill, that never happened. Uh, it it uh, simply allowed them to grow stronger, to project force more readily. So we really have had a sea change in our attitudes towards China, a new realization of what we're dealing with. We've We've moved away from this Kissinger typology, and we're now onto a much more realistic notion. I would also hope that uh, we would take a, another hard look at our policy vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Mm -hmm. I think, personally, I think it was a mistake that Kissinger made to dump our ally Taiwan over the over the side of the ship and and uh, uh, cuddle up to to mainland China, and that it, it's in America's interest that Taiwan remain an independent nation, uh, no matter what. Uh, they are the key to, for, ch for China to break through the first island chain so that in a conflict they can push their forces out into the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And if China were to take over Taiwan, there's no way that we could hold them behind the first island chain. It's absolutely critical. It's a, it's, it's a cornerstone to our defense. Mm -hmm. And yet nobody seems to be acting that way. I couldn't mm -hmm. agree more. I think Taiwan is critically important. Uh, and we've, uh, we've nurtured a, a small nation, 23 million people, into a vibrant democracy. They are our 10th largest trading partner, and they have uh, patterned their society and their mm -hmm. political culture on ours. What could, be, what could be more desirable than to have an ally like that in the East Asian right. uh, periphery? Well, Dr. Stark, or Dr. Admiral Stark. Yes. Dr. Halper. Sir. As usual, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'd like to have you back on at some point fairly Certainly. soon because we've covered about 20% of what we needed to cover. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot, and it's an important issue. I think maybe the biggest issue of our time. So anyway, thanks for coming on, and uh, we will be continuing with our China stories and uh, um, look forward to having you back. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. Want more? 
Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. 